couple of weeks, thank you. Because of you, we're still on the air, so thank you. And if you were unable to give last time, let me also thank you for still being there. Believe me, there's nothing sadder than a lonely radio broadcaster. I do look forward to that day when you can make that donation. Until then, I'm glad you're there. We had an incredible showing the last day of our drive, but still came up a few thousand dollars short. Now, it's not too late to make a donation before the end of the year. Being able to use it for a tax deduction and help ensure our ability to broadcast over the next couple of months to you, the Bay Area, and the world. If you've yet to make that donation and can't afford to do so, go online at kpfa.org. It's safe, secure, and it's easy. Just go to kpfa.org. And you're listening to KPFA, KPFB, KFCF, and Fresno. Cover to cover with Rana Cowan begins now. Cover to cover, open book, or as I like to say, frame to frame. My name is Raina Cowan, and I'm going to be here for the next half hour talking to you about one of my favorite subjects, film. And since this is the end of the year, I thought it was a good time to do the end of the year wrap up. Uh, you know, there's a list of films that I feel inspired by. There's a list of films that I'd want to watch again, and then there's films that um, I just get a tickle out of, and I thought I would go through some of the films that have meant something to me this year, and uh, perhaps if you've seen them, uh, have meant something to you, or they can go on your list for things to do in the next few weeks. The film that struck me the most and actually brought me to tears a number of times is a documentary entitled Virunga. It's a new film by Orlando Van Einzedale, and um, interestingly, uh, you know, I don't know if it's actually had a run in the theater, but it is playing on Netflix now, and hopefully will be in a theater at some point, because it is an incredibly powerful film. It takes place in the Virunga National Park in eastern Congo, and in some ways, the film starts off in a very simple way, which is about the mountain gorillas. It's the only place that is their home at this point. But really, this is a film about something that's much bigger. It's about the colonial struggle for natural resources, and not just locally, but uh the international impact over time. I mean, if we follow the history of Congo, there has been a long history of um, exploitation. And in this film, we find sort of the residue of that in the modern day. So we're finding out about the gorillas, but it turns out that this national park, half of it uh, is a lake, and underneath the lake, uh, these British explorers, um, excavators, colonialists, are fighting for oil because they want to get the natural resources that are there. Uh, then there's the corruption, and the corruption is the corruption both of this uh, group of uh, oil resource people from out of the country who are basically trying to pay people both at the park and in the community uh, to so that they can have the rights to the oil. There are armed militia 
the M23, which is a rebel group that is also attacking this region. And then there are poachers who are after the animals for many different reasons. So there's a lot of different battles going on at one time. Now, Having a story that is so complex as this told in a way that's systematic and structured is a really hard thing to do. And I think that the director, Von Einseidel, was able to do something that was really remarkable. One, he put himself in incredible danger telling this story because he is there as a documentarian when this war breaks out. He's there when he's trying to negotiate and get the stories of things that uh, if people knew that they were being filmed, uh, he would probably be killed. And that there's a larger fight for the guerrillas. Initially, uh, he was making a film about the different uh people who are involved as armed guards to protect the park and protect the animals. So, But slowly, that's not what the story is about it actually becomes an action thriller where uh, it's a fight for one's life for the animals for the people who live in uh, the Virunga Park the Virunga Park has really gone out of its way to become a community center and try to make itself sustainable for all the different villagers who live nearby so there's been a lot of community organizing that's been going on. There's a French journalist, Melanie Gooby, uh, who basically tries to find out what's really happening here in this war zone. So it is a story that is uh, dynamic and compelling. And all these things, all these elements are woven together in a way that's extraordinary. The editor is Masahiro Hirakubo from, uh, he's both a uh, done films like Train Spotting and has also edited films in LA and he takes a story that could have been very confusing and weaves it in such a way that it's dynamic and powerful. So it's a sad film, it's an intense film and uh it's a film that really speaks about the modern age in a very interesting way. Furunga, uh the new film by Orlando Van Eisendale. And just as a note, I'm starting with documentaries and then working to uh, feature films. The second film that I thought was really strong and dynamic is Citizen Four, which is the new film by Laura Poitras. And, uh, you know, this is a film, if you haven't seen it, that tells the story of uh, her travels first to Hong Kong to meet with Edward Snowden and for us to learn all about surveillance. Now, there's many elements of this film. I've been following Laura Poitras for a long time and have interviewed her, and she has been in many diff dangerous situations. You know, she was in Iraq. She was following what was happening there in an earlier film. And, you know, I remember in that film interviewing her and feeling like, how could she put herself in such dangerous position? And I think at the time, she just thought that she was just motivated by truth. In this film, what strikes me as extraordinary as as we find out what's happening to Edward Snowden and as she's doing her investigation, I think that she herself gets more scared of the implications of um, surveillance, both by the U.S. government and by um, their allies. And so there is this quality of fear that's in her. So it's not like she as... 
uh, as separated from the material as she had been before. And I think that that's what makes the film feel extraordinary. Also, you know, Edward Snowden is somebody who uh, has seen as, is seen as somebody who's kind of arrogant or removed or vilified by some. But what's clear is that in this film, you can see both how thoughtful he is, how smart he is, how uh, able he's to see systematically what is happening. He's not the most related person in the world, but that's not what really matters. What matters is that he was willing to risk his life in order for the story to get out. And as the film goes on, you keep on thinking, well, is this what 1984 was all about? Like, we are living something where we need to move to action. Now, when I saw this film, uh, I was incredibly impressed with it. But I have to say something that uh, was disturbing, which was I was the youngest person in the audience. And uh, and I don't know if it just happened to be when I saw it, because I decided to go to a theater rather than to a press screening. But uh, I wondered if there's a way that this is an issue that... It's affecting some, but if you've lived in a world where the Internet is always there, where you're always texting, where you're so connected to information that you don't feel the need to protect yourself in this way. So this really raises those kinds of issues on a larger level. I think it's a really well done film and uh, uh, very powerful. The third documentary that I really liked is entitled Particle Fever. Uh, it's by Berkeley filmmaker Mark Levinson, although I think he moved to New York. And what drew me to this film in the first place is the editor, Walter Murch, who I think is one of the most extraordinary editors and thinkers of our time. And uh, the film is a, about something that I would never really be interested in, which is the Large Hadron Collider. <laughs> it's uh, it's a film about physics. So something that uh, was never dramatically interesting for me or dynamic is one of the most exciting films I've seen in a long time. It's uh, organized in such a way about whether you will find out whether uh, these particles can collide and what will happen. Even though if you've read the newspaper, you know the answer before you've seen the film. I think that's an an example of a dynamic film. And because Walter Murch is the editor, the sound quality in this film is wonderful. So that makes it really worthwhile to see in a theater. It also focuses on not just um, the male physicists, but I think the strongest characters from the film are the women physicists who are trying to figure out how to communicate physics in a way that other people can be excited by and get more women involved in physics. So that is my third of my uh, six documentaries that I really like. I just want to let you know that you're listening to Frame to Frame, and I'm Raina Cowan, and I'm going through the list of uh, films that I think are terrific this year that really struck me. The fourth film is a new film by Cambodian French filmmaker Rithi Pan. Uh, he has made a series of films that explored 
his childhood experience in Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge. Uh, he's done it from many different angles. He has gone to Cambodia and interviewed people who worked in the camps uh, that uh, held people hostage and that murdered millions of people. He's gone there and talked to people who were the victims of the Khmer Rouge. He has thought about this from many different angles. In his new film, Missing Picture, he does something that kind of expands it in a completely different way, which is he uses clay figures, which he has made, uh, that represent the different community people, the villagers, the different city people, to tell his story. So using his clay figures, archival footage, and his own narration, he recreates the atrocities from his childhood. And there is something about having these clay figures, which usually are something that represent kind of innocence and play, but instead in this situation are representing something that is more intense and uh, more violent. And you're seeing these figures that both represent individuals and then at times represent groups. And I think that this was one of the dynamics in the Khmer Rouge. Was somebody an individual? No, that was not good. You had to represent society. You are no longer an individual. So he's wrestling with these ideas in a way that both feels philosophical and uh, experimental and really allows us to re understand a part of history in a new way. Because I think that in so many ways, that's what documentary has to do is something has happened and then we need to understand it and then re-understand it and re-understand it, which is why somebody can watch a film, for example, about the Vietnam War over and over again, different kinds of films, because there's many different truths and many different examples. The fifth film that I think is really extraordinary as a documentary is Jodorowsky's Dune. Now, this is a very different kind of film uh, because it's not a political film. It's directed by Frank Pavich, and it's about Alejandro Jodorowsky's making of uh, Herbert's cult book, Dune. So in 1974, he decided that he had been uh, sort of a surrealist filmmaker in Mexico. And uh, a French man who was a producer said, I will give you money to make film on anything that you want. And he decides he's going to make this film about Dune. And for all of you who... Um, haven't read it. It's one of those science fiction stories that takes place on an asteroid in a world where uh, it's a sand world where there's no water and there's a spice that is what everybody needs for living. So this is a film that long before Star Wars or anything except for Planet of the Apes, he visualizes in his mind. Uh, he hires people from people who did covers of um, science fiction books. He chose people who were in the art world and used them to try to create this vision that has been recreated again and again in film since then. Um, but the film, that's, that's what's so remarkable about the film is that it never was made. 
So it's about a film where the vision was much greater than what Hollywood could bear. That uh, the cost of making the film, which was going to be about $15 million, was too much. They didn't trust this man, but uh, they respected his vision. And it was something that was both seen and used over and over again in future films. So it's a really delightful film. Uh, he's He's kind of a crazy genius at times he's a little irritating uh, he's a bit arrogant and at the same time he was pushing something in a way that um i think great artists need to do so i found that really wild the sixth documentary i want to talk about is uh called the dog and it is a wild film it is a film about John Watsowitz, who was the man who tried to rob a Brooklyn bank to pay for his male lover's sex reassignment surgery. It's a film, it's a robbery that prompted the film Dog Day Afternoon, uh, way back when. So, uh, these two filmmakers, Francois Caraudren and Alison Berg, decided to interview Watsowitz, uh, when he was still alive, and it took them about 10 years to make this film. It's a really, rough film in some ways uh john himself is a very um crazy passionate uh difficult person and so full of himself and it's a great environment for a film because it's like the story that became Dog Day Afternoon is more dramatic than Dog Day Afternoon. And if you haven't seen Dog Day Afternoon, uh, that would be another film to watch over this holiday season. You know, it was such a very interesting uh, Al Pacino film that I think is extraordinary, and I love that film. So those are the list of the my top six documentaries <laughs> for uh, this year. Uh, if if you're interested in checking them out, uh, I want to move on to features. I just want to remind you I'm Raina Cowan, and this is Frame to Frame, and we're talking about my year-end thoughts about film. The film that struck me as the most interesting film this year is Ida, um, which is a Polish-British co-production by Paweł Pawlowski. And uh, it's a black-and-white film, extraordinarily beautiful and severe, it takes place in 1962. It tells the story of Anna, who is about to take vows as a nun, when she learns that her only relative is Jewish and that she herself is Jewish. So both women embark on a journey to discover their family's story and where they belong. I think that there's that this film is about many different things. Uh, the first is somebody who is about to become a nun who uh, has lost her parents in the war and has to make a choice of being in a cloistered, protected life or really dealing with the complexities of what's happening around her. That's a really difficult choice for her. And she sees her aunt, who is somebody who had been in power in the Polish government and yet had been completely devastated both by the Holocaust and the impact on um, her own life and has had a life that has be been, become filled with suffering. So um, I don't know. Do you choose suffering or suffering and in what way? So 
that is sort of what the story is on. Now, when I've talked to uh, Polish friends of mine, they say that actually there's a whole other layer of this film, which is all about the politics that are happening, that were happening in Poland then. And the way that Poland was complicit and continued to be complicit in both what happened in the Holocaust, how it negotiated um, its relationship with Russia, the Soviet Union, and how uh, the, the oppression that was put on Poland was then transformed onto the government, who then put it onto the people. So that there's a whole other layer. But because the film takes place in 1962, we're seeing the remnants of the war, the impact of the war, and how people's lives are still impacted by something that ended so many years earlier. So it's about the longevity of pain and then the transformation and whether that's possible or not. Ida, a wonderful film. The next film I want to talk about is Boyhood, Richard Linkletter's amazing film about time starring Ethan Hawke as as the father and Eller Coltrane as Mason, somebody who uh, over time... uh, we start seeing him when he's five, and we see him till he was 18. Now, I interviewed Richard Linkletter, and I asked him about, you know, how could you start thinking about, in, you know, choosing people for a film when they're five, and then who are they going to become by the time that they're 18? In some ways, he's dealing with something radical, but in other ways, uh, it's like a mistake that you make at one point, is going to have dramatic effects over time. So I wondered what he was thinking about when he made this film, and I thought I'd play a little bit of my interview with him uh, just so we could all think about it. Limitation of the physicality of your young actor. So it was a, it took 12 years to tell the story that I wanted to tell, which was um, how we grow up. You know, I couldn't say that in just one one part of it i had to kind of see the whole process and ultimately it's a portrait of you know growing up this century but it's also a portrait of parenting you know the the you realize the adults they're not fixed you know they're they're still growing and changing and maturing also so then it seems like how you chose the casting at the very beginning it was kind of risky because you're trying to figure out who these people are now um, and then who they're going to develop into as actors over time. And you chose, you know, this this boy who, Ellard Coltrane, and then you chose your daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you chose two actors who are more professional actors, Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke. So how did you, did you, what did you have a sense of at the very beginning? I mean, it's a huge leap. Um, I've never been in that position before. I don't think anyone has where you're casting someone and you have to imagine not just who they are today, which is what you're looking for, but, oh, well, 12 years from now, are you still going to be, you know, the right person for this part? And, you know, a lot goes on between 7 and 18. You become a different person, potentially. You know, there's puberty ahead. There's all this. But um, I think the film was designed to incorporate incrementally, year by year, whatever little changes went on with everybody, the inevitable evolution of of people to kind of adjust my early notions of what the film is and just kind of go where they went and in their own way. It's still the film I set out to do, 
but I always told Eller it'll kind of fuse with who he is. So that's not really him at the beginning of the film, but by the end, I feel that is sort of him. And did you have a sense of who you wished that Mason was going to be by 18? Or like, did you have this idea that you were going to kind of create some kind of image? Or did it, uh, is it totally different than what you imagined? The film was really just trying to capture how we mature, how we grow up, age, you know. And I think I could have done that with anybody on the one hand, if they you know, stayed with the project and it reached its own maturity. And that would have been interesting probably in into itself, regardless of what kind of person he, he grew up to be. But I did get very lucky. He grew up to be kind of the best version of what I could have hoped for. He's, he's a very thoughtful, sensitive young man. And that was uh, Richard Linkletter talking about his film Boyhood, which is really wonderful and well worth checking out. Uh if you're interested in something fun and rocky, I would recommend We Are the Best, Lucas Moodyson's uh, Swedish film that revolves around three girls in 1980 Stockholm who decide to form a punk band despite not having any experience or possibly any talent. It's uh, They're dynamic, they're alive, they, uh, they're passionate. Uh, the acting he got out of these girls is terrific, and it's a really fun lively, engaging film, one that I think is really strong. Uh, Locke is a film that no one's really been talking about. It's a very unusual film. It's a British drama written by and directed by Stephen Knight and stars Tom Hardy. And the thing that's really incredible about this film is that it takes place in a car, in a BMW to be exact. This man is leaving a work site and he is heading somewhere. We don't know exactly where. And through the course of the film, different people call him up from his, either his work, his family, or where he's going, which has to do with the fact that somebody who he had a brief affair with is having his child. There's a sense of how does he negotiate that world. And what works so interestingly is how so much time we spend in a car, how much time we are devoted to it. But this is a, a, a technique that is unusual and is riveting in a way that one wouldn't really expect. Uh, we see how this man is emotionally trying to do something that he's never done before that's different from how he was treated when he was a boy, how we hear the voices of all these people in his life and how disappointed they are with him or angry or frustrated. So it's a, it's a very novel way to tell a story. It, um, it's quite compelling and it pulls you into something in a new kind of way. Uh, you know, I can imagine that you could either feel claustrophobic in the story or it feels like you're watching a play within a play within a play so i would really recommend that and my last film on my list is a film that you can't see in the theaters because for some reason it never got released but i think it's one of the best films of the year it's entitled elo elo uh 
and it's a Mandarin phrase meaning mum and dad not at home. It's a first film by Singaporean writer-director Anthony Chen, and it's streaming on Netflix, or you can get it at video stores, and it's based on the director's own childhood experiences of being cared for by a maidservant from the Philippines. Um, he grew up in the in in Singapore and the little boy who's at the center of the story is unspeakably obnoxious he's a brat he's manipulative he's imperious he's difficult and um, the parents are annoying and horrible and yet over the course of the time we watch them we watch the dynamics of the family and we are riveted um, it's it's like a film where you want to keep watching where you want to join in the family because you want to understand how uh, how change can happen and there is a lot of change that happens in very subtle ways so this filmmaker anthony chan who went to film school in london is extraordinarily talented he took something so complex and made it so mellifluous and focused in a way that is unusual. So you learn about uh, this middle class world in Singapore. You learned about the the Filipina maid's life. You learn about the dynamics and you learn about how does change happen. It's an inspire, inspiring and wonderful film. So to just summarize, um, uh, the films I talked about today that I really liked Virunga, Citizen Four, Particle Fever, Missing Picture, Jodorowsky's Dune, The Dog, and then the features Ida, Boyhood, We Are the Best, Locke, and Elo Elo. Great films to watch. Um, some are available on DVD and others are in the theater. So I hope you have a great Wonderful, warm, listening, watching time for the next couple of weeks as things get a little bit hectic in the family world and you might need to escape. And I'll be back in January to talk about more film. My name is Raina Cowan. This has been Cover to Cover, Open Book, Frame to Frame. Thank you so much for listening. Undercover presents... Spotline Studios and KPFA invite you to a special encore tribute to Bay Area's very own Fly and the Family Stone and their influential album, Stand. As the first major rock band comprised of musicians of various races and genders to come out of the States, Sly and the Family Stone embodies diversity and community. This tribute carries that spirit back to the Bay Area, involving over 175 musicians from nine local bands, as well as special appearances by former members of Sly and the Family Stone. Accompanying the tribute is the first ever Sly and the Family Stone convention, featuring panel discussions with several members of the Family Stone, as well as other experts on the family. Saturday, January 24th at O2 